Good evening, everybody. This is Barbara with Canada Girl Speaks Podcast, and I'm very excited to be here um, recording on t- this evening. Um, we are still in COVID status, and so, like I've said before, I'm at my residence, and my engineer is at his residence, and my guest on tonight is at his residence, and so we are separate. We're social distancing, and so um, I, I'm very excited to have um, the guest, um, my guest in my VIP room on tonight. Um, he is, he's, he has been in our community bef- uh, before. Um, while I'm not sure exactly how long ago, but uh, I know she'll, I'm sure he'll tell tell me that tell us that once he introduces himself. And so, um, without further ado, I'm going to introduce the listening audience. Uh, that, I'm going to introduce to you, out in the listening audience, Dr. Billy Snow. Yay! Thank you, thank you so much for accepting the invitation to be on Canon Girl Speaks podcast. So tell the listening audience a little bit about yourself, Dr. Snow. Well, thank you. Good evening, Miss Kelly. It's uh, awesome to hear your voice and be able to talk to you. Um, of course, the Canon was one of the most impactful times of my life. So uh, my name is Dr. Billy Snow for everybody out there. Um, I'm in education. I've been a classroom teacher. I've been a principal of two different schools, and one of those schools was for an amazing seven years in Corsicana at Bowie Elementary School, um, where I'm just so proud of the work that we did there. And then from there, went to uh, Mansfield ISD, close to DFW, and served as a principal and area superintendent over 12 schools. Um, then had an experience that really just uh, further changed my life by being able to go to Shreveport, Louisiana, and lead the Transformation Zone of Schools, which was a group of schools that had been failing schools, and I just learned so much about school improvement, turnaround, and equity, and have been also Chief of Transformation and Innovation in Dallas ISD, where we started new schools of choice um, here within the school district such as single gender academies, STEM academies, and even a downtown planning and urban development high school in a high-rise in downtown Dallas, and then served as a superintendent and worked to raise that school district, um, Cedar Hill ISD's uh, school rating to a B, and improved discipline and teacher morale and retention uh, before I started my own consulting company uh, last year in 2019 called Transformation Leaders Network. And what we strive to do is to be able to serve the kids that need us the most by focusing on equity and focusing on things like climate and culture, uh, school transformation and innovation, and even uh, do a lot of principal and assistant principal and executive level coaching for other districts. But all the work is done with the kids who need us to focus on them and the kids that need us to focus on equity. So thank you for having me tonight, and it's just a pleasure to, to be here on your show. Well, you have done you have done a lot, and I don't think you're that old to have done so much in a short stint of time. That, um, like you said, being being here in our community, in Corsicana, for seven years, and then it's just like you just took off and you just started on that on that resume. And so um, the reason why I wanted wanted to ask you to be wanted you to be on the podcast because I felt like you know I've always felt like you're a change agent, and I but because of the climate that we are in uh, right now within our, our nation, um, I thought, you know what, you would be the you would be the best person to have a discussion about 
um, you know, definitely uh, you know, race. And I'm um, just having an open discussion because I think now with everything that's taken place from um, the George Floyd, um, you know, murder mm-hmm. and, um, you know, the Black Lives Movement, you know, has, um, has been, uh, you know, empowered, you know, and then a lot of our young people have been empowered. And I just have, have always paid attention to how you have moved throughout, you know, um, from, you know, leaving our community, also going to, like you said, Louisiana. And you've always just kind of like been the type type of person I feel like that has been a change agent. And so that even after all this that has transpired within this last month or so, you also started um, a conversation, you know, on social media. And so tell us a little, about, a little bit about that, uh, that the organization that you kind of started, you know, on social media. Sure. Absolutely. Um, I think, um, I'm not even sure you know this story or how my story got started, but when I came to Corsicana, I was a 29-year-old, bright-eyed principal, and I looked at Bowie Elementary's data at the time, and 20% of the African-American students were in special education, and the scores for the minority students, or particularly economically disadvantaged minority or black and Hispanic students, were the lowest scores in the school. And I didn't even know what the what equity meant. Like I, I didn't. I just knew that I thought every every kid could learn, and I'm going to go in there and figure it out. And one of the things I'm so proud of is that within three years at Bowie Elementary School, we had become an exemplary campus, and the number of African American students in special education had dropped all the way down to three percent. So we were not only serving all of our kids better but we were actually not labeling kids and focusing on equity without even using that term. Um, And so we became an exemplary campus and I learned at that time that, you know, every, everything is possible and that kids can truly do amazing things, but you have to treat everybody um, like what they need. They have to have everything that they need. Um, I learned at that time that equality is giving everybody the exact same thing, but that equity means literally giving everybody a shoe that fits, not just a pair of shoes. Um, and so I went, I, that was like a very formative time. And I went um, from there to another school where we had the same statistics, and this was in Mansfield, uh, over-identified in special education among African-American students and the, the lowest performing subgroup. And within one year, we turned that school around and barely missed um, exemplary by just one student. And after that, um, I, after serving as an area superintendent there, um, the place that changed my life the most and made me an equity warrior was actually you know, Shreveport, Louisiana. Because when I got there, 400 children were being arrested every year at the two high schools. of my teachers were long-term subs. There were 6,000 students in all of my schools combined, and every single one of them were 99% free and reduced lunch and African-American in inner-city Shreveport. And I started to question the system, and I started to learn that the system was created that way on purpose. Um, And to learn that there was a reason why the kids like across the river in the magnet schools or the affluent schools um, or and across the highway were able to have certified teachers and and all the things that they needed. Their buildings were well maintained. 
And I walked into these schools and saw substitute teachers trying to teach kids, kids getting arrested, and even work orders and painting hadn't been done at these schools. And I was hired by a, by a great superintendent who wanted me to help turn turn this around. So, you know, we prioritized those schools. We we painted them. We fixed them up. We, you know, put all of our efforts into finding certified teachers. We did all of our staff development um, and that we could target toward uh, helping these kids and had to address equity. I had to ask tough questions in cabinet meetings about why is this happening in black communities? Um, why do, do you realize that this is institutional racism? Because if you go to Shreveport, Louisiana, it's a beautiful you know, community and I love it to death, but the highway itself was, you know, splitting the town between black and white. The river itself was splitting the city between black and white and the schools were splitting the community into black and white and the black students and black teachers and principals were not being served. So within the three years that I was there, in fact, the first year, that number of 400 arrests a year turned into 11. Wow. And the, right, <laughs> the discipline referrals went down 60 to 80%. The uh, nine out of the 10 schools came out of failing status, out of that status within two years. The graduation rates when I got there at those schools, for my schools, was 44 to 50% graduation rates. And within the three years that I was there, it went up 30 points. And so I learned that in order to change the outcomes, you have to intentionally challenge and disrupt the systems. So I carried that with me into all of my work. And the lessons that I learned in Corsicana as a principal and in the job in Shreveport made me so passionate about equity that I started doing workshops and, and speeches and keynotes and, and things like that about equity and about anti-racism several years ago. But as we look um, right now, um, the thing that, that we have an opportunity to do that makes me even more active right now is that we have a pandemic that has slowed our lives down where we're not rushing around to jobs as much. We're eating with our families. We're not as busy as we were, yeah. and then we see the murder of Ahmaud Arbery, and we see the murder of George Floyd, and we see other examples, and we see the Black Lives Matter protesting, and white people are finally realizing that we need to believe black people, yeah. and that we need to we need to listen and that and mobilize. And so that's why I've started not only doing the workshops I've always done for school improvement, but also focusing on putting panels together and putting workshops together that literally get people in the room talking about race and talking about what we can do to dismantle systems of oppression. So like last night's workshop, for example, we had 250 people registered, very diverse audience, and nine panelists from across the country that just talked for an hour and a half about how we can be anti-racist in our schools. So do you think it's, you think, is it a hard, is it a hard topic to talk about? Because sometimes you find that people, they just don't want to talk about it. It's like, because it, 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 it sometimes it, it can be hurtful and then people have to uncover, it has to be appealing back. And so do you find it a hard topic to talk about, talk about as far as racism and, you know, mm -hmm. I mean, you, you find it a hard topic to talk yeah. about? Yeah. 
it, it is for some people. But, how, do you break, um, how do you break the ice? How do you break the ice? <laughs> um, I, you know, now I've learned you break the ice by just starting conversation and listening and setting the groundwork for listening. But when I, and I'll, I'll be honest, when I was in Shreveport and my whole job was turning around schools, I probably was too direct about calling it all out. But I had a very serious job to do, yeah. and I made I made enemies. And there were people I got followed in my car. Um, I got sent threatening text messages. Wow. There was a fake, yeah. There was a fake Facebook and website page made up about the transformation zone, and so I experienced firsthand that even with all the great people around me that were doing the great work, like the superintendent and Dr. Lamar Gorey and everybody on my team, I learned that it is very uncomfortable and people do not like being told that institutional racism has created better environments for some people and worse for others. And so I probably did a little bit too much uh, pushing and being very direct there. And so since then, I've mixed it with asking a lot of questions. So my the way I set up my conversations lately is really just to get people in the room of a very diverse audience that are interested in the topic at least and then be able to set the ground rules that you know we're here to learn from each other we're here to realize that every single one of us in this room have biases and that I'm probably going to say something stupid even within this hour and a half together but we will be respectful <laughs> we will be kind we will ask questions and we're going to make it a priority and I, I tell the white people in the room that come to these meetings and come to these podcasts, I'm like, we are going to learn to listen to black people. And we need to be quiet. And, and I'm going to moderate and ask questions. And I think, and I think that, and I think that, because I, you know, I've learned over the time that we can agree to disagree. But we do have to start having discussion because we've been, we've been kind of kicking the can up the road for a long time. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it takes things to happen, you know, to, for it to, you know, for it to just, you know, finally just kind of go, go, come to a head. And so tell me, yep. tell, tell us about, tell us about uh, systematic racism. You know, tell yeah. us a little bit about that, you know, because that, that term has been, you know, you've heard that come up a lot, especially, you know, during this, during this time, systematic racism. Yep. Well, you know, it was something that I didn't realize really existed until I started working in predominantly um, minority and African-American schools. Well, I grew up in, you know, suburban schools with a single mom, and most of the kids that I had been around with were actually white. And I went off to college and got, you know, my early experiences with um, other populations. And then as a teacher and a principal started serving um, kids of color. And it wasn't until I started serving students of color and faculty members of color that I actually had to address my own biases or my own, or the, my, the systems that I actually benefited from. Because one thing that people don't understand, white people do not understand who, who deny there is white privilege. Yeah. White, pri white privilege does not mean that I had it easy. White privilege just meant that the color of my skin was not one of the things that got in my way. I grew up as a economically disadvantaged white child of a single mother who became my hero when she escaped an abusive marriage. We had it hard, but I learned when I went to schools of color and in Shreveport, when I'm dealing with students that are getting shot in the community, 
And when I'm seeing the fact that white schools had in that community had 100% certified teachers and mine had 60% certified teachers, when I'm hearing stories from my own principals, teachers, and students about them getting followed in a, in, a, in a shop or being treated badly on a traffic stop, I had to step back and I had to be like, you know what? I started researching. I started researching black history. I started researching redlining and the way mortgages were um, designed to put people in certain neighborhoods. I started researching and seeing the, even the way highways were built and developments were built. They were built to separate neighborhoods and people and certain neighborhoods and certain people. And I had to also come to realize I have never been afraid to be stopped by a police officer and I have never had to teach my children what to do when stopped by a police officer in a traffic stop. But none of my black friends in Shreveport have that same experience. Every single one of them has to have the conversation with their kids. Yeah, we call it the top. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. Exactly. And so the systems, whether they be education, where kids aren't getting the resources and teachers and so forth, or redlining and mortgages or police officers and how they interact with people, I learned that there are so many systems that are set up for people that look like me that I had to look at myself and say, you know what? I used to think racism was over, people were good, black people are achieving, but I never, but then I finally had to deal with it, that that is an exception, and it's because people have overcome and done even more to be successful than, than a lot of people like me have to do to be successful. And so I, part of me finding out what is systemic racism was actually looking at my own privilege even though I grew up poor, and being able to say, you know what, I've never had to think about anything, any of these things, and my color being an issue, and dealing with it. Yeah. So, <laughs> so um, you know, as as you continue to have your discussions, do you feel do you seem do you, you feel like the walls will start coming down? The the layers of these, you know, those, you know that that those walls have been built up over the years because you know I I've been you know been kind of like just kind of like you said studying on my own on my own because sometimes a lot of times the reason why we're in this shape that we're in now as far as our, our society is because a lot of things just wasn't taught to us it wasn't told to us you know it wasn't it wasn't discussed and so now that because we have a society of young people you know these young people that are you know these 20 early 20s and they they have no they have no they they are open to discussion you know, and so because a lot of times things wasn't was, were not told to us back in the day. You know, be it you know history history was kind of chopped up. You know, hit, hit miss. Yep. And so now, um, now you know it's being brought out things that should have been told to us, and now we're being awakened by just the truth. You know, mm-hmm. and I feel like to me that's an, that's that's an empowerment that's empowerment for our communities. And so, um, as you, as this group, as your discussion is developed, where do you see it going? What do you see? You know, do you see changes being made? Yeah, um, you know, big changes, and I think it's a perfect opportunity, and I think it's um, a really important to kind of give a story of, of that provides some context because when I was when I was in Shreveport, and we had this con- contest called the Amazing Shake. 
we taught all of our kids, you know, handshake, eye contact, back and forth communication, public speaking, interview skills, and debate. And I know Corsicana is also doing that competition now. But in Shreveport, the thing that made it special was that every single one of my kids was black. And they were learning tie-breaking life skills that we take for granted. Um, and, you know, and, and we wanted to give them opportunities for you know, that interview in college or that interview for work. Well, the winner of the competition got to go to Washington, D.C. from each one of my 10 schools and give a speech as if they're president of the United States. Well, none of my kids had ever been out of Shreveport or on a plane. And we get to Washington, and we go to one of the days, we go to the African American History and Culture Museum mm. and Mount Vernon on the same day, okay? And the tour guide, when we went to the museum, he told us to start on the top floor, and that was the pop, pop culture stuff and that the kids would like it. And I stood up on the bus, and I said, no, we're, we're going to start on the bottom floor in the year 1400, mm. and you you will move your way up and get as far as you can. Well, Theodore, he was like 16 years old, beautiful, beautiful black boy with long dreadlocks, comes up to me while we're at Mount Vernon. And he had been to the museum in Mount Vernon. And he looked to me in the eye and he says, Mr. Snow, he said, um, I have questions. <laughs> I said, well, what's up? And he said, um, I noticed that they had separate slave quarters for male and female slaves. And we learned that they only got them together every once in a while. Were they breeding us like cattle? And I got like a tear in my eye. And he said, and I have another question. He said, you know, I know a lot of people who don't have, in my neighborhood, he was just talking about her, his experience. He said, I know a lot of people who don't have their dad living with them in the house. Um, is it possible that hundreds of years of breaking apart and selling apart our families still affects us today. Mm. And I had a choice in that moment to answer him as a white man or to not speak for black people. And so I said, you know what? I know what I think about those answers, but I want to take you to talk to your superintendent because he's a black man who married his high school sweetheart, who has a doctorate, who broke you know, patterns and stereotypes. Yeah, and I just want you to get, yeah, I just want you to get his perspective. And he, they walked along the banks of the Potomac River talking about black history. And he did not know anything about his history. Wow. And so I became passionate about black history and was part of efforts to get black history curriculum in Dallas ISD and also in the Cedar Hill ISD because it is so important. And until we teach everyone's history, and until we teach everyone the truth and be able to dialogue about it, some of the stuff that we're going through is never, ever, ever going to heal. But we're at the right time in history to do it. And that's what I'm finding from these conversations. Is the first one I had, there were only 10 people. The next one I had, there was a webinar. And the next one I had, there was like 20. Well, last night was 251, and we're doing another on July 14th and another on July 28th, and we're doing a big three-hour workshop on August 1st for teachers and leaders. And I'm seeing so many people, because of what's happening in, happening in our political environment, yeah. I'm seeing so many people seek to be supportive and to be open, regardless of what's happening on the side that is not open and the side that is demonstrating hate and divisiveness, 
I'm seeing that our young people, and like my daughters, for example, they are equity warriors. And they are really, truly fighting for what's right. And it gives me hope. We have to get through the next several years and not give up. And we have to keep pushing and keep fighting. And we have to make sure that these people don't divide us like they're trying to do. But I, I feel really, really hopeful. And one of the things that I think can do that is a true history curriculum that reflects all of our cultures and tells the truth about about black history. And I think once, once you know, that... You have those discussions, and um, and I feel like that's that's the that's the piece that's missing the empowerment piece because yes, you know we a lot of times we don't know our true history, and that's and then that's where you you, you you tend to see the cycles, and and now you know why we do why why things are going on the way that they're going on because you know you look back on history and that's you know if something happened back then and that's the reason why we're in the situation we are you know we're in now even in, this, in even in our small community of Fort Scanner. You know, mm-hmm. it's it, it's set up a certain way because of the history part of it. And once Absolutely. we once we peel back the history part of it, I think that our community can can finally heal. You know, yes. so we have to have we have to have the open discussion, the hard discussions, in order for us to heal. Because that's all that's what's taking place in our nation. We've had a lot of hurt, and we have have we have not had any healing. You know, and Absolutely. so um, we just have to be open to the discussion and open to allowing us allowing us to heal. Because I just yep. I do I believe I do believe that our young people and those young people are going to come behind the you know those the, even our small babies that they're not they're they're going to be a part of a society that you know racism is going to be like racism. What is that? You know, I just believe <laughs> that because it yes, racism is taught, but because. Because our young people now, they're you know they're they're open to you know being diverse. You know it doesn't matter, and um, I just feel like that it'll it'll eventually just you know be very a small percentage of people like that. Mm-hmm. You know because you know the older generation they're dying mm-hmm. off, and so their their mentality is going away, and so then you're going to have that shift. That you're going to have that shift. You know, so it's it's it's, it's going to happen. It's going to happen. Absolutely. And, you know, I think um, one of the things I do in some of my equity workshops with, you know, schools or districts is um, you you have to, I lead people through having those conversations. Um, I was blessed to be a part of the Racial Equity Leadership Network in 2018. Um, it's funded by the Southern Education Foundation. And it's a year-long fellowship. And one of the things they taught us was how to have conversation structures and how to set up conversational rules and structures and probing questions for you create a safe environment. And I, we learned so many different strategies. And so some, when I go and do equity work with a school or with a district, um, I teach them those strategies. Because if they, a lot of people think when they start a conversation about race and equity, they are scared of it because they think it's gonna lead to conflict or it's gonna lead to um, arguments or whatever. So what I try to do at the beginning, the whole first you know, half a day, is teach them and model and practice ways to ask questions and ways to give one person at the time uh, the opportunity to talk and then reflect what they are saying and really work on listening skills without giving people an opportunity to defend the view they already hold. And it's, it's really powerful. I've had rooms full of people where 
a question is asked, like, tell about a time when your race or gender has made you feel like you don't belong. And you have one person talk first, and they talk for like two minutes, and the other person is not allowed to say anything. And then after the time's up, you're allowed to reflect what you heard, but you're not allowed to give your opinion. Hmm. And then you switch switch partners. I, every single time I've done it, people leave, leave that activity in tears hmm. because you get to then share what you learned. And every single time, there are white voices in the room that will cry about saying, you know what, I just realized I've never had to think about this in my life. Mm. Or you'll have black voices in the room that will say, this feels so much like a release to be able to just talk without feeling like it's going to get into an argument. Mm. And I think that those are some things we all have to learn in order for us to, to continue to walk forward in this um, in this discussion. And the other thing I learned last night in my in my webinar was one of the black panelists told me that I that we needed to understand that racism doesn't just hurt black people but it hurts white people too. Yeah. Because white people develop a false sense of history. They develop a false idea of what whiteness is. They can't talk about their culture necessarily. And that when times do get tough, like we're, what we're going through with the pandemic and unemployment and a divisive political nature, they can only lash out because yeah. they've learned an entire history of what whiteness is supposed to be that's not accurate. And so it was eye-opening <laughs> to me to be, able, to be able to have white people and black people engaged in that conversation and realizing that one of the reasons we have to get over and fight racism is because it hurts everybody. It hurts everybody. That's correct. That's correct. So, um, so where, so what is your, what is your future? What is the, what, tell us about, you know, what, what, what you would like to see, you know, your, your career and, you know, the future of, you know, what, what you're doing, you know, cause, um, you are, you are a trained agent and, um, are you wanting to add more people to your team? You know, just where, where, where do you want to go with what you're doing? Yeah, thank you for asking. Um, one of the things I realized when I ended up in the hospital a few times um, while I was a superintendent was that um, balance is important to my life. Yeah. And another thing I realized um, during the pandemic was we started eating dinner every night at the dinner table again. And we, because before, I guess we had gotten too busy and we were all running different directions. So I've learned during the pandemic to not take dinner at the tables for granted, right? Yeah. So, so one of my goals is to find balance and to grow my company. Um, I want to, and I, I do have a team of consultants that join me and that I call on to help do the work. And I want to, I want to add more people to that team so that we have a all the areas you know covered like social emotional learning and climate and culture and school improvement uh, but our focus our thread that runs through it you know is equity so um i want to spread the, the outreach of transformation leaders network and my own consulting um across you know the, the state and the country and i want to add more people to the team i'm currently writing writing two books uh one is about the power of principals and teachers um, to tell kind of my story and story of other people that have made a difference um, in my own journey and inspire teachers and leaders. And then the second book I'm actually writing, I haven't titled it yet, but it's about leveraging white privilege. Mm -hmm. And it's looking at my 
experience as a white man leading um, schools of co- with people of color and being able to kind of teach people about the lessons that I've learned and teach teach white people what they can do to be an ally and a co-conspirator with our black brothers and sisters to make change. Um, so I'm working on two books, and I just hope to get those books um, out there into the world within the next year and then also be able to expand um, the, the consulting company and be able to help as many kids as I possibly can. I've also learned that I love the, the jobs I love the most <laughs> were being a principal mm-hmm. and also supervising school turnaround in Shreveport. So there's always an opportunity that I've thought about in the future about, you know, going back into the system and perhaps being a principal again or doing uh, leading principal at school turnaround. Um, so this actually has been a great slowdown for me to be able to take me back to my passion. And those years at those years at Bowie were some of the best years in my educational journey. And people have often told me that those were some of the, my happiest years too. Um, so I thank you for that, for being a part of Corsicana community and all, and all the people there because it was an amazing space to do amazing things for kids. So what do you so what do you tell what can you tell a young person that's coming up you know as far as um, you know what, what what do you tell your young people what do you how do you tell them to be, have a voice because sometimes yeah. adults, we don't we don't allow them to have voices and so now you know this this, this generation of young people that's coming up they they are they are well spoken or outspoken and so mm-hmm. how so how do we channel that to to for them to be as well change agents yep. So I think the first thing we have to do is make sure the adults know that the kids are probably the most educated generation in history because of all the information they have access to. And they are already doing a lot on like social media and advocating and my own, it was interesting because after it was um, explained that um, there was a movement on TikTok to snatch up tickets to a certain rally in Tulsa um, and there were not very many people that showed up to that rally. All of my children admitted that they were part of this big movement that, wow. that snatched up tickets. So, so I think the first thing we have to do is we have to acknowledge that our kids are already active, and we have to be purposeful in listening to them. And one of the other things I teach principals and, and leaders is to how to listen to kids and how to make the classroom about them and how to make sure they have a voice in the classroom. And then for those students, I would just say, you know, you have, a, you have an opportunity to make a huge difference in the world. You are the next biggest generation next to the baby boomers. Yeah. Within, a, within a few years, you will have control and power to truly change the world. Yeah. So if you, start, if you start now and you start and you vote, and you vote in every election, not just the presidential election, and you vote for change and for anti-racist candidates and for progress in our country, that's going to be a huge way that you can make a difference. And then use your platforms. Because I had to pivot. I was doing all face-to-face consulting, and I had to pivot to doing you know, online and virtual yeah. sessions and things like that. Yeah. They already, you already have that, kids. Um, use your platforms to be able to advocate and teach and lead and engage people. Um, because you have a voice, and you're going to be very much able to change this world. I'm so proud of you. All the kids that are, that are protesting for the environment and making sure you have a clean world, 
that you should have a clean world. Yeah. All the kids that are out there protesting for Black Lives Matter and protesting against voter suppression, you're doing the right things. So get out there and stick with it. Wow. Well, Dr. Stowe, I really um, appreciate you accepting the invitation to be on Cannon Girl Six podcast. And so I always give my uh, guests an um, opportunity to give a shout-out. So does anybody want to give a shout-out to? Absolutely. <laughs> I want to say hello to uh, Donnie Denbo, the first superintendent to ever hire me for a principal's job. Um, I want to say hello to Dr. DeFrost um, for all the work that you do in Corsicana. All the uh, board members in Corsicana just remember that you made uh, are a part of my history and my story. And shout out to Bowie Elementary School, all of the teachers, all the kids, all the families. Um, that were a part of the Bowie legacy because we truly created something special. And then for any of the larger audience that's listening, I'm just so thankful for all the teachers and principals that I've had the luxury and the blessing to work with over the years. And you're a part of my story. So go be a part of somebody else's story too. Well, thank you so much. And um, I look forward to seeing, you know, your business boom. Um, I, I, I do believe it's going to go, it's going to get bigger because you are a, a person of change. You're a change agent. You, you, well, you're you. innovative, you know, you, you're outside the box. And um, I just know that um, you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna be big, you know. So just, just, just remember the small people when you get that way. <laughs> remember well, us. Well, thank you. <laughs> so, um, well, like well, thank I said, you thank very you. much. Well, thank you again so much for accepting the invitation, and you have a uh, awesome Fourth uh, of July and a safe you one, too. and stay safe, social distancing, and all that good stuff. And so, uh, to my to my listening audience, um, thank you so much for listening to County Girl Speaks podcast, and please stay safe, um, practice social distancing, wear your mask, wash your hands, and all that good stuff, and just have a very, very, very uh, good Fourth of July. Thank you so much for listening. Can a Girl Speaks podcast is recorded at Shred Shed Studio. Shred Shed Studio, where you get big city production at small town prices. Recording, mixing, mastering, guitar instruction, production, and songwriting. Find out more at shredshedstudio.com or email your inquiries to Aaron, A-A-R-O-N, at shredshedstudio.com the premier music studio in Corsicana, Texas.